Section three of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Custom House continued. Such were some of the people with whom I now found myself connected. I took it in good part, at the hands of Providence, that I was thrown into a position so little akin to my past habits, and set myself seriously to gather from it whatever profit was to be had. After my fellowship of toil and impracticable schemes with the dreamy brethren of Brook Farm, after living for three years within the subtle influence of an intellect like Emerson's, after those wild, free days on the Assabeth, indulging fantastic speculations, beside our fire of fallen boughs, with Ellery Channing, after talking with Thoreau about pine-trees and Indian relics in his hermitage at Walden, after growing fastidious by sympathy with the classic refinement of Hillard's culture, after becoming imbued with poetic sentiment at Longfellow's hearthstone, it was time, at length, that I should exercise other faculties of my nature, and nourish myself with food for which I had hitherto had little appetite. Even the old inspector was desirable, as a change of diet, to a man who had known Alcott. I looked upon it as an evidence, in some measure, of a system naturally well balanced, and lacking no essential part of a thorough organization, that, with such associates to remember, I could mingle at once with men of altogether different qualities, and never murmur at the change. Literature, its exertions and objects, were now of little moment in my regard. I cared not at this period for books they were apart from me. Nature—except it were human nature—the nature that is developed in earth and sky, was, in one sense, hidden from me, and all the imaginative delight wherewith it had been spiritualized passed away out of my mind. A gift, a faculty, if it had not been departed, was suspended and inanimate within me. There would have been something sad, unutterably dreary in all this, had I not been conscious that it lay at my own option to recall whatever was valuable in the past. It might be true, indeed, that this was a life which could not, with impunity, be lived too long, else it might make me permanently other than I had been, without transforming me into any shape which it would be worth my while to take. But I never considered it as other than a transitory life. There was always a prophetic instinct, a low whisper in my ear, that within no long period, and whenever a new change of custom should be essential to my good, change would come. Meanwhile, there I was, a surveyor of the revenue, and, so far as I have been able to understand, as good a surveyor as need be. A man of thought, fancy, and sensibility, had he ten times the surveyor's proportion of those qualities, may, at any time, be a man of affairs, if he will only choose to give himself the trouble. My fellow officers, and the merchants and sea-captains with whom my official duties brought me into any manner of connection, viewed me in no other light, and probably knew me in no other character. None of them, I presume, had ever read a page of my inditing or would have cared a fig the more for me if they had read them all. Nor would it have mended the matter in the least, 
had those same unprofitable pages been written with a pen like those of burns or of chaucer each of whom was a custom-house officer in his day as well as i it is a good lesson though it may often be a hard one for a man who has dreamed of literary fame and of making for himself a rank among the world's dignitaries by such means to step aside out of the narrow circle in which his claims are recognised and to find how utterly devoid of significance beyond that circle is all that he achieves and all he aims at i know not that i especially needed the lesson either in the way of warning or rebuke but at any rate i learned it thoroughly nor it gives me pleasure to reflect did the truth as it came home to my perception ever cost me a pang or require to be thrown off in a sigh in the way of literary talk it is true the naval officer an excellent fellow who came into the office with me and went out only a little later would often engage me in a discussion about one or other of his favourite topics napoleon or shakespeare the collector's junior clerk too a young gentleman who it was whispered occasionally covered a sheet of uncle sam's letter-paper with what at the distance of a few yards looked very much like poetry used now and then to speak to me of books as matters with which i might possibly be conversant this was my all of lettered intercourse and it was quite sufficient for my necessities no longer seeking or caring that my name should be blazoned abroad on title-pages i smiled to think that it had now another kind of vogue the custom-house marker imprinted it with a stencil and black paint on pepper-bags and baskets of anatto and cigar-boxes and bales of all kinds of dutiable merchandise in testimony that these commodities had paid the impost and gone regularly through the office born on such queer vehicle of fame a knowledge of my existence so far as a name conveys it was carried where it had never been before and i hope will never go again but the past was not dead once in a great while the thoughts that had seemed so vital and so active yet had been put to rest so quietly, revived again. One of the most remarkable occasions, when the habit of bygone days awoke in me, was that which brings it within the law of literary propriety, to offer the public the sketch which I am now writing. In the second story of the custom-house there is a large room, in which the brickwork and naked rafters have never been covered with panelling and plaster. The edifice, originally projected on a scale adapted to the old commercial enterprise of the port, and with an idea of subsequent prosperity destined never to be realised, contains far more space than its occupants know what to do with. This airy hall, therefore, over the collector's apartments, remains unfinished to this day, and, in spite of the aged cobwebs that festoon its dusky beams, appears still to await the labour of the carpenter and mason. At one end of the room, in a recess, were a number of barrels piled one upon another, containing bundles of official documents. Large quantities of similar rubbish lay lumbering the floor. It was sorrowful to think how many days, and weeks, and months, and years of toil had been wasted on these musty papers, which were now only an encumbrance on earth, and were hidden away in this forgotten corner 
never more to be glanced at by human eyes. But then, what reams of other manuscripts, filled not with the dullness of official formalities, but with the thought of inventive brains, and the rich effusion of deep hearts, had gone equally to oblivion, and that, moreover, without serving a purpose in their day, as these heaped-up papers had, and, saddest of all, without purchasing for their writers the comfortable livelihood which the clerks of the custom-house had gained by these worthless scratchings of the pen. Yet not altogether worthless, perhaps, as materials of local history. Here, no doubt, statistics of the former commerce of Salem might be discovered, and memorials of her princely merchants, old King Derby, old Billy Gray, old Simon Forrester, and many another magnate in his day, whose powdered head, however, was scarcely in the tomb before his mountain pile of wealth began to dwindle. The founders of the greater part of the families which now compose the aristocracy of Salem might here be traced, from the petty and obscure beginnings of their traffic, at periods generally much posterior to the Revolution, upward to what their children look upon as long-established rank. Prior to the Revolution there is a dearth of records, the earlier documents and archives of the custom-house having, probably, been carried off to Halifax, when all the King's officials accompanied the British army in its flight from Boston. It has often been a matter of regret with me, for, going back, perhaps, to the days of the Protectorate, those papers must have contained many references to forgotten or remembered men, and to antique customs, which would have affected me with the same pleasure as when I used to pick up Indian arrowheads in the field near the old manse. But, one idle and rainy day, it was my fortune to make a discovery of some little interest. Poking and burrowing into the heaped-up rubbish in the corner, unfolding one and another document, and reading the names of vessels that had long ago foundered at sea or rotted at the wharves, and those of merchants never heard of now on change, nor very readily decipherable on their mossy tombstones. Glancing at such matters with the saddened, weary, half-reluctant interest which we bestow on the corpse of dead activity, and, exerting my fancy, sluggish with little use, to raise up from these dry bones an image of the old town's brighter aspect, when India was a new region, and only Salem knew the way thither. I chanced to lay my hand on a small package, carefully done up in a piece of ancient yellow parchment. This envelope had the air of an official record of some period long past, when clerks engrossed their stiff and formal chirography on more substantial materials than at present. There was something about it that quickened an instinctive curiosity, and made me undo the faded red tape that tied up the package, with the sense that a treasure would here be brought to light. Unbending the rigid folds of the parchment cover, I found it to be a commission, under the hand and seal of Governor Shirley, in favour of one Jonathan Pugh, as surveyor of His Majesty's customs for the port of Salem, in the province of Massachusetts Bay. I remembered to have read, probably in Felt's annals, a notice of the decease of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, about fourscore years ago, and likewise, in a newspaper of recent times, an account of the digging up of his remains in the little graveyard of St. Peter's Church, during the renewal of that edifice. 
nothing, if I rightly call to mind, was left of my respected predecessor, save an imperfect skeleton, and some fragments of apparel, and a wig of majestic frizzle, which, unlike the head that it once adorned, was in very satisfactory preservation. But, on examining the papers which the parchment commission served to envelop, I found more traces of Mr. Pugh's mental part, and the internal operations of his head, than the frizzled wig had contained of the venerable skull itself. They were documents, in short, not official, but of a private nature, or at least written in his private capacity, and apparently with his own hand. I could account for their being included in the heap of custom-house lumber only by the fact that Mr. Pugh's death had happened suddenly, and that these papers, which he probably kept in his official desk, had never come to the knowledge of his heirs, or were supposed to relate to the business of the revenue. On the transfer of the archives to Halifax, this package, proving to be of no public concern, was left behind, and had remained ever since unopened. The ancient surveyor, being little molested, I suppose, at that early day, with business pertaining to his office, seems to have devoted some of his many leisure hours to researches as a local antiquarian, and other inquisitions of a similar nature. These supplied material for petty activity to a mind that would otherwise have been eaten up with rust. A portion of his facts, by the by, did me good service in the preparation of the article entitled Main Street, included in the present volume. The remainder may perhaps be applied to purposes equally valuable hereafter, or, not impossibly, may be worked up, so far as they go, into a regular history of Salem, should my veneration for the natal soil ever impel me to so pious a task. Meanwhile they shall be at the command of any gentleman, inclined and competent, to take the unprofitable labour off my hands. As a final disposition I contemplate depositing them with the Essex Historical Society. But the object that most drew my attention to the mysterious package was a certain affair of fine red cloth, much worn and faded. There were traces about it of gold embroidery, which, however, was greatly frayed and defaced, so that none, or very little, of the glitter was left. It had been wrought, as was easy to perceive, with wonderful skill of needlework, and the stitch, as I am assured by ladies conversant with such mysteries, gives evidence of a now forgotten art, not to be discovered even by the process of picking out the threads. This rag of scarlet cloth, for time, where, and a sacrilegious moth had reduced it to little other than a rag, on careful examination, assumed the shape of a letter. It was the capital letter A. By an accurate measurement, each limb proved to be precisely three inches and a quarter in length. It had been intended, there could be no doubt, as an ornamental article of dress, but how it was to be worn, or what rank, honour, and dignity, in by-past times, were signified by it, was a riddle which, so evanescent are the fashions of the world in these particulars, I saw little hope of solving. And yet it strangely interested me. My eyes fastened themselves upon the old scarlet letter, and would not be turned aside. Certainly there was some deep meaning in it most worthy of interpretation, and, 
which, as it were, streamed forth from the mystic symbol, subtly communicating itself to my sensibilities, but evading the analysis of my mind. When thus perplexed, and cogitating, among other hypotheses, whether the letter might not have been one of those decorations which the white men used to contrive, in order to take the eyes of Indians, I happened to place it on my breast. It seemed to me—the reader may smile, but must not doubt my word—it seemed to me then that I experienced a sensation, not altogether physical, yet almost so, as of burning heat, and as if the letter were not of red cloth, but red-hot iron. I shuddered, and involuntarily let it fall upon the floor. In the absorbing contemplation of the scarlet letter, I had hitherto neglected to examine a small roll of dingy paper, around which it had been twisted. This I now opened, and had the satisfaction to find recorded by the old surveyor's pen a reasonably complete explanation of the whole affair. There were several fools-cap sheets, containing many particulars, respecting the life and conversation of one Hester Prynne, who appeared to have been a rather noteworthy personage in the view of our ancestors. She had flourished during the period between the early days of Massachusetts and the close of the seventeenth century. Aged persons, alive in the time of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, and from whose oral testimony he had made up his narrative, remembered her, in their youth, as a very old but not decrepit woman, of a stately and solemn aspect. It had been her habit, from an almost immemorial date, to go about the country as a kind of voluntary nurse, and doing whatever miscellaneous good she might, taking upon herself, likewise, to give advice in all matters, especially those of the heart, by which means, as a person of such propensities inevitably must, she gained from many people the reverence due to an angel. But, I should imagine, was looked upon by others as an intruder and a nuisance. Prying further into the manuscript, I found the record of other doings and sufferings of this singular woman, for most of which the reader is referred to the story entitled The Scarlet Letter. And it should be borne carefully in mind that the main facts of that story are authorised and authenticated by the document of Mr. Surveyor Pugh. The original papers together with the scarlet letter itself, a most curious relic, are still in my possession, and shall be freely exhibited to whomsoever, induced by the great interest of the narrative, may desire a sight of them. I must not be understood as affirming that, in the dressing up of the tale, and imagining the motives and modes of passion that influenced the characters who figure in it, I have invariably confined myself within the limits of the old surveyor's half a dozen sheets of foolscap. On the contrary, I have allowed myself, as to such points, nearly, or altogether, as much licence as if the facts had been entirely of my own invention. What I contend for is the authenticity of the outline. This incident recalled my mind, in some degree, to its old track. There seemed to be here the groundwork of a tale. It impressed me as if the ancient surveyor, in his garb of a hundred years gone by, and wearing his immortal wig, which was buried with him but did not perish in the grave, had met me in the deserted chamber of the custom-house. In his port was the dignity of one who had borne His Majesty's commission, 
and who was therefore illuminated by a ray of the splendour that shone so dazzlingly about the throne. How unlike, alas, the hang-dog look of a republican official, who, as the servant of the people, feels himself less than the least, and below the lowest of his masters! With his own ghostly hand, the obscurely seen but majestic figure had imparted to me the scarlet symbol and the little roll of explanatory manuscript. With his own ghostly voice he had exhorted me, on the sacred consideration of my filial duty and reverence towards him, who might reasonably regard himself as my official ancestor, to bring his mouldy and moth-eaten lucubrations before the public. "'Do this,' said the ghost of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, emphatically nodding the head that looked so imposing within its memorable wig. "'Do this, and the profit shall be all your own. You will shortly need it, for it is not in your days as it was in mine, when a man's office was a life-lease, and oftentimes an heirloom. But I charge you, in this matter of old Mistress Prynne, give to your predecessor's memory the credit which will be rightfully due. And I said to the ghost of Mr. Surveyor Pugh, I will. On Hester Prynne's story, therefore, I bestowed much thought. It was the subject of my meditations for many an hour, while pacing to and fro across my room, or traversing, with a hundredfold repetition, the long extent from the front door of the custom-house to the side entrance and back again. Great were the weariness and annoyance of the old inspector and the weighers and gaugers, whose slumbers were disturbed by the unmercifully lengthened tramp of my passing and returning footsteps. Remembering their own former habits, they used to say that the surveyor was walking the quarter-deck. They probably fancied that my sole object, and indeed the sole object for which a sane man could ever put himself into voluntary motion, was to get an appetite for dinner and, to say the truth, an appetite, sharpened by the east wind that generally blew along the passage, was the only valuable result of so much indefatigable exercise. So little adapted is the atmosphere of a custom-house to the delicate harvest of fancy and sensibility, that, had I remained there through ten presidencies yet to come, I doubt whether the tale of the scarlet letter would ever have been brought before the public eye. My imagination was a tarnished mirror. It would not reflect, or only with miserable dimness, the figures with which I did my best to people it. The characters of the narrative would not be warmed and rendered malleable by any heat that I could kindle at my intellectual forge. They would take neither the glow of passion nor the tenderness of sentiment, but retained all the rigidity of dead corpses and stared me in the face with a fixed and ghastly grin of contemptuous defiance. "'What have you to do with us?' that expression seemed to say. "'The little power you might have once possessed over the tribe of unrealities is gone. You have bartered it for a pittance of the public gold. Go, then, and earn your wages.' In short, the almost torpid creatures of my own fancy twitted me with imbecility, and not without fair occasion. It was not merely during the three hours and a half, which Uncle Sam claimed as his share of my daily life, that this wretched numbness held possession of me. It went with me on my seashore walks and rambles into the country, whenever—which was seldom and reluctantly— 
I bestirred myself to seek that invigorating charm of nature, which used to give me such freshness and activity of thought, the moment that I stepped across the threshold of the old manse. The same torpor, as regarded the capacity for intellectual effort, accompanied me home, and weighed upon me in the chamber which I most absurdly termed my study. Nor did it quit me when, late at night, I sat in the deserted parlour, lighted only by the glimmering coal-fire and the moon, striving to picture forth imaginary scenes, which, the next day, might flow out on the brightening page in many-hued description. If the imaginative faculty refused to act at such an hour, it might well be deemed a hopeless case. Moonlight, in a familiar room, falling so white upon the carpet, and showing all its figures so distinctly, making every object so minutely visible, yet so unlike a morning or noontide visibility, is a medium the most suitable for a romance-writer to get acquainted with his elusive guests. There is the little domestic scenery of the well-known apartment, the chairs, with each its separate individuality, the centre-table, sustaining a work-basket, a volume or two, and an extinguished lamp, the sofa, the bookcase, the picture on the wall, all these details, so completely seen, are so spiritualised by the unusual light, that they seem to lose their actual substance, and become things of intellect. Nothing is too small or too trifling to undergo this change, and acquire dignity thereby. A child's shoe, the doll seated in her little wicker carriage, the hobby-horse, whatever, in a word, has been used or played with during the day, is now invested with a quality of strangeness and remoteness, though still almost as vividly present as by daylight. Thus, therefore, the floor of our familiar room has become a neutral territory, somewhere between the real world and fairyland, where the actual and the imaginary may meet, and each imbue itself with the nature of the other. Ghosts might enter here without affrighting us. It would be too much in keeping with the scene to excite surprise, were we to look about us and discover a form, beloved but gone hence, now sitting quietly in a streak of this magic moonshine, with an aspect that would make us doubt whether it had returned from afar, or had never once stirred from our fireside. The somewhat dim coal-fire has an essential influence in producing the effect which I would describe. It throws its unobtrusive tinge throughout the room, with a faint ruddiness upon the walls and ceiling, and a reflected gleam upon the polish of the furniture. This warmer light mingles itself with the cold spirituality of the moonbeams, and communicates, as it were, a heart and sensibilities of human tenderness to the forms which fancy summons up. It converts them from snow-images into men and women. Glancing at the looking-glass, we behold, deep within its haunted verge, the smouldering glow of the half-extinguished anthracite, the white moonbeams on the floor, and the repetition of all the gleam and shadow of the picture, with one remove further from the actual and nearer to the imaginative. Then at such an hour, and with this scene before him, if a man, sitting all alone, cannot dream strange things, and make them look like truth, 
he need never try to write romances. But for myself, during the whole of my custom-house experience, moonlight and sunshine and the glow of firelight were just alike in my regard, and neither of them was of one whit more avail than the twinkle of a tallow-candle. An entire class of susceptibilities, and a gift connected with them, of no great richness or value, but the best I had, was gone from me. It is my belief, however, that had I attempted a different order of composition, my faculties would not have been found so pointless and inefficacious. I might, for instance, have contented myself with writing out the narratives of a veteran shipmaster, one of the inspectors, whom I should be most ungrateful not to mention, since scarcely a day passed that he did not stir me to laughter and admiration by his marvellous gifts as a story-teller. Could I have preserved the picturesque force of his style, and the humorous colouring which nature taught him how to throw over his descriptions, the result, I honestly believe, would have been something new in literature. Or I might readily have found a more serious task. It was a folly, with the materiality of this daily life pressing so intrusively upon me, to attempt to fling myself back into another age, or to insist on creating the semblance of a world out of airy matter, when, at every moment, the impalpable beauty of my soap-bubble was broken by the rude contact of some actual circumstance. The wiser effort would have been to diffuse thought and imagination through the opaque substance of to-day, and thus to make it a bright transparency, to spiritualise the burden that began to weigh so heavily, to seek, resolutely, the true and indestructible value that lay hidden in the petty and wearisome incidents and ordinary characters with which I was now conversant. The fault was mine. The page of life that was spread out before me seemed dull and commonplace, only because I had not fathomed its deeper import. A better book than I shall ever write was there, leaf after leaf presenting itself to me, just as it was written out by the reality of the flitting hour, and vanishing as fast as written, only because my brain wanted the insight, and my hand the cunning, to transcribe it. At some future day, it may be, I shall remember a few scattered fragments and broken paragraphs, and write them down, and find the letters turn to gold upon the page. These perceptions had come too late. At the instant I was only conscious that what would have been a pleasure once was now a hopeless toil. There was no occasion to make much moan about this state of affairs. I had ceased to be a writer of tolerably poor tales and essays, and had become a tolerably good surveyor of the customs. That was all. But, nevertheless, it is anything but agreeable to be haunted by a suspicion that one's intellect is dwindling away, or exhaling, without your consciousness, like ether out of a file, so that, at every glance, you find a smaller and less volatile residuum. Of the fact there could be no doubt, and, examining myself and others, I was led to conclusions, in reference to the effect of public office on the character, not very favourable to the mode of life in question. In some other form, perhaps, I may hereafter develop these effects. Suffice it here to say that a custom-house officer of long continuance can hardly be a very praiseworthy or respectable personage, for many reasons, 
one of them the tenure by which he holds his situation, and another the very nature of his business, which, though I trust an honest one, is of such a sort that he does not share in the united effort of mankind. An effect, which I believe to be observable, more or less, in every individual who has occupied the position, is, that while he leans on the mighty arm of the Republic, his own proper strength departs from him. He loses, in an extent proportioned to the weakness or force of his original nature, the capability of self-support. If he possesses an unusual share of native energy, or if the enervating magic of place do not operate too long upon him, his forfeited powers may be redeemable. The ejected officer, fortunate in the unkindly shove that sends him forth betimes, to struggle amid a struggling world, may return to himself, and become all that he has ever been. But this seldom happens. He usually keeps his ground just long enough for his own ruin, and is then thrust out, with all sinews unstrung, to totter along the difficult footpath of life as he best may. Conscious of his own infirmity, that his tempered steel and elasticity are lost, he forever afterwards looks wistfully about him, in quest of support external to himself. His pervading and continual hope, a hallucination, which, in the face of all discouragement, and making light of impossibilities, haunts him while he lives, and, I fancy, like the convulsive throes of the cholera, torments him for a brief space after death, is that, finally, and in no long time, by some happy coincidence of circumstances, he shall be restored to office. This faith, more than anything else, steals the pith and availability out of whatever enterprise he may dream of undertaking. Why should he toil and moil, and be at so much trouble to pick himself up out of the mud, when, in a little while hence, the strong arm of his uncle will raise and support him? Why should he work for his living here, or go to dig gold in California, when he is so soon to be made happy, at monthly intervals, with a little pile of glittering coin out of his uncle's pocket? It is sadly curious to observe how slight a taste of office suffices to infect a poor fellow with this singular disease. Uncle Sam's gold, meaning no disrespect to the worthy old gentleman, has, in this respect, a quality of enchantment like that of the devil's wages. Whoever touches it should look well to himself, or he may find the bargain to go hard against him, involving, if not his soul, yet many of its better attributes, its sturdy force, its courage and constancy, its truth, its self-reliance, and all that gives the emphasis to manly character. Here was a fine prospect in the distance. Not that the surveyor brought the lesson home to himself, or admitted that he could be so utterly undone, either by continuance in office or ejectment. Yet my reflections were not the most comfortable. I began to grow melancholy and restless, continually prying into my mind, to discover which of its poor properties were gone, and what degree of detriment had already accrued to the remainder. I endeavoured to calculate how much longer I could stay in the custom-house, and yet go forth a man. To confess the truth, it was my greatest apprehension, 
as it would never be a measure of policy to turn out so quiet an individual as myself, and it hardly being in the nature of a public officer to resign. It was my chief trouble, therefore, that I was likely to grow grey and decrepit in the surveyorship, and become much such another animal as the old inspector. Might it not, in the tedious lapse of official life that lay before me, finally be with me, as it was with this venerable friend, to make the dinner-hour the nucleus of the day, and to spend the rest of it, as an old dog spends it, asleep in the sunshine or in the shade. A dreary look forward, this, for a man who felt it to be the best definition of happiness, to live throughout the whole range of his faculties and sensibilities. But, all this while, I was giving myself very unnecessary alarm. Providence had meditated better things for me than I could possibly imagine for myself. A remarkable event of the third year of my surveyorship, to adopt the tone of P.P., was the election of General Taylor to the Presidency. It is essential, in order to a complete estimate of the advantages of official life, to view the incumbent at the incoming of a hostile administration. His position is then one of the most singularly irksome, and in every contingency disagreeable, that a wretched mortal can possibly occupy, with seldom an alternative of good on either hand, though what presents itself to him as the worst event may, very probably, be the best. But it is a strange experience, to a man of pride and sensibility, to know that his interests are within the control of individuals who neither love nor understand him, and by whom, since one or the other must needs happen, he would rather be injured than obliged. Strange, too, for one who has kept his calmness throughout the contest, to observe the bloodthirstiness that is developed in the hour of triumph, and to be conscious that he is himself among its objects. There are few uglier traits of human nature than this tendency, which I now witnessed in men no worse than their neighbours, to grow cruel, merely because they possessed the power of inflicting harm. If the guillotine, as applied to office-holders, were a literal fact, instead of one of the most apt of metaphors, it is my sincere belief that the active members of the victorious party were sufficiently excited to have chopped off all our heads, and have thanked heaven for the opportunity. It appears to me, who have been a calm and curious observer, as well in victory as defeat, that this fierce and bitter spirit of malice and revenge has never distinguished the many triumphs of my own party, as it now did that of the Whigs. The Democrats take the offices, as a general rule, because they need them, and because the practice of many years has made it the law of political warfare, which, unless a different system be proclaimed, it was weakness and cowardice to murmur at. But the long habit of victory has made them generous. They know how to spare when they see occasion, and when they strike, the axe may be sharp indeed, but its edge is seldom poisoned with ill-will, nor is it their custom ignominiously to kick the head which they have just struck off. In short, unpleasant as was my predicament, at best I saw much reason to congratulate myself that I was on the losing side rather than the triumphant one. If, heretofore, I had been none of the warmest of partisans, I began now, at the season of peril and adversity, to be pretty acutely sensible with which party my predilections lay. Nor was it without something like regret and shame, 
that, according to a reasonable calculation of chances, I saw my own prospect of retaining office to be better than those of my democratic brethren. But who can see an inch into futurity beyond his nose? My own head was the first that fell. The moment when a man's head drops off is seldom or never, I am inclined to think, precisely the most agreeable of his life. Nevertheless, like the greater part of our misfortunes, even so serious a contingency brings its remedy and consolation with it, if the sufferer will but make the best, rather than the worst, of the accident which has befallen him. In my particular case the consolatory topics were close at hand, and, indeed, had suggested themselves to my meditations a considerable time before it was requisite to use them. In view of my previous weariness of office, and vague thoughts of resignation, my fortune somewhat resembled that of a person who should entertain an idea of committing suicide, and although beyond his hopes, meet with the good hap to be murdered. In the custom-house, as before in the old manse, I had spent three years, a term long enough to rest a weary brain, long enough to break off old intellectual habits and make room for new ones, long enough, and too long, to have lived in an unnatural state, doing what was really of no advantage nor delight to any human being, and withholding myself from toil that would, at least, have stilled an unquiet impulse in me. Then, moreover, as regarded his unceremonious ejectment, the late surveyor was not altogether ill-pleased to be recognised by the Whigs as an enemy, since his inactivity in political affairs, his tendency to roam, at will, in that broad and quiet field where all mankind may meet, rather than confine himself to those narrow paths where brethren of the same household must diverge from one another, had sometimes made it questionable with his brother Democrats whether he was a friend. Now, after he had won the crown of martyrdom, though with no longer a head to wear it on, the point might be looked upon as settled. Finally, little heroic as he was, it seemed more decorous to be overthrown in the downfall of the party with which he had been content to stand, than to remain a forlorn survivor, when so many worthier men were falling. And at last, after subsisting for four years on the mercy of a hostile administration, be compelled then to define his position anew, and claim the yet more humiliating mercy of a friendly one. Meanwhile the press had taken up my affair, and kept me for a week or two careering through the public prints, in my decapitated state, like Irving's headless horseman, ghastly and grim, and longing to be buried as a political dead man ought. So much for my figurative self. The real human being all this time, with his head safely on his shoulders, had brought himself to the comfortable conclusion that everything was for the best, and making an investment in ink, paper, and steel pens, had opened his long-disused writing-desk, and was again a literary man. Now it was that the lucubrations of my ancient predecessor, Mr. Surveyor Pugh, came into play. Rusty through long idleness, some little space was requisite before my intellectual machinery could be brought to work upon the tale, with an effect in any degree satisfactory. Even yet, though my thoughts were ultimately much absorbed in the task, it wears, to my eye, a stern and sombre aspect, too much ungladdened by genial sunshine, 
too little relieved by the tender and familiar influences which soften almost every scene of nature and real life, and undoubtedly should soften every picture of them. This uncaptivating effect is perhaps due to the period of hardly accomplished revolution, and still seething turmoil, in which the story shaped itself. It is no indication, however, of a lack of cheerfulness in the writer's mind, for he was happier while straying through the gloom of these sunless fantasies than at any time since he had quitted the old manse. Some of the briefer articles, which contribute to make up the volume, have likewise been written since my involuntary withdrawal from the toils and honours of public life, and the remainder are gleaned from annuals and magazines of such antique date that they have gone round the circle and come back to novelty again. Keeping up the metaphor of the political guillotine, the whole may be considered as the posthumous papers of a decapitated surveyor, and the sketch which I am now bringing to a close, if too autobiographical for a modest person to publish in his lifetime, will readily be excused in a gentleman who writes from beyond the grave. Peace be with all the world, my blessing on my friends, my forgiveness to my enemies, for I am in the realm of quiet. The life of the custom-house lies like a dream behind me. The old inspector, who, by the by, I regret to say, was overthrown and killed by a horse some time ago, else he would certainly have lived for ever. He, and all those other venerable personages who sat with him at the receipt of custom, are but shadows in my view, white-headed and wrinkled images, which my fancy used to sport with, and has now flung aside for ever. The merchants, Pingree, Phillips, Shepherd, Upton, Kimball, Bertram, Hunt, these and many other names, which had such classic familiarity for my ear six months ago, these men of traffic, who seemed to occupy so important a position in the world, how little time has it required to disconnect me from them all, not merely in act, but recollection! It is with an effort that I recall the figures and appellations of these few. Soon, likewise, my old native town will loom upon me through the haze of memory, a mist brooding over and around it, as if it were no portion of the real earth, but an overgrown village in cloudland, with only imaginary inhabitants to people its wooden houses and walk its homely lanes, and the unpicturesque prolixity of its main street. Henceforth it ceases to be a reality of my life. I am a citizen of somewhere else. My good townspeople will not much regret me, for, though it has been as dear an object as any, in my literary efforts, to be of some importance in their eyes, and to win myself a pleasant memory in this abode and burial-place of so many of my forefathers, there has never been, for me, the genial atmosphere which a literary man requires in order to ripen the best harvest of his mind. I shall do better amongst other faces, and these familiar ones, it need hardly be said, will do just as well without me. It may be, however—oh, transporting and triumphant thought—that the great-grandchildren of the present race may sometimes think kindly of the scribbler of bygone days, when the antiquary of days to come, among the sights memorable in the town's history, shall point out the locality of the town pump. End of section three.